Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Tony Ria. Well, once again, as Pastor Chris has already said, we want to welcome you here to Community Christian Church and say it's so good to have you with us. It's great to see you. And I trust you're having a good Michigan summer so far. You're enjoying the summer. I'm confident that no one is complaining about the intense heat or the high humidity, right? Because you remember just a few short weeks ago the steady diet of cold weather and rain that we had all during the month of May and June. So everybody's managing the warmth, right? Yeah, that's what I thought. I'm sure of it. All right. Today we're going to start, just like you saw in the video, we're going to start a brand new series entitled James. And we plan to spend the entire month of August in the book of James. Are you ready for that? And the goal with this series is to gain additional knowledge and insight from the Word of God like we always do. But in addition to that, we actually want to press into God and find that place, that elusive place, of full devotion to Him. Unless you forget, that's our mission here. That's what we're all about at Community Christian Church. Our mission is twofold. First part of it is to preach Christ crucified and raised from the dead so that unsaved people get saved. That's what we hope and pray for. And then the second part of the mission is to help save people become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And it really doesn't matter what book of the Bible you study. All of the scripture, the entire word of God is going to point us in that direction. It's going to challenge us and compel us to be fully devoted, to be passionate about our faith, to go all in with God. And so that's the objective with this James series. Not to spiritually limp through the summer months, barely making it, but to use August as a pivotal mid-year point to actually press into God and go to the next spiritual level. So who's in on that? All right. That's about half of you, and so we're going to try and get the rest of you on board here by the end of the service. Okay, again, the book of James. And right out of the starting gate, who can tell me who wrote the book of James? That's right. Wasn't Peter. Wasn't Paul. Or Mary. You know, Peter, Paul, and Mary. It was actually James. James wrote the book of James. Second question, probably not as obvious the first, which James? Because there are three James listed in the New Testament. The first one was James, the brother of John, and they were fishermen. They were disciples, the original disciples of Jesus. They were referred to as the sons of Zebedee. Jesus nicknamed as the sons of thunder, and I understand why he did that. The scripture tells us in Acts chapter 12 that this particular James was killed by King Agrippa, and so we know he's not the author. Then there was the James, the son of Alphaeus, another one of Jesus' original disciples, but very little is spoken about him or mentioned in the scripture, so we're confident that he wasn't the author. 
That leaves James, the half-brother or the step-brother of Jesus. And if for some reason you thought Jesus didn't have any brothers, or you were always taught that Jesus was an only child, Matthew chapter 13, verses 54 through 56 says, Coming to his hometown, Jesus began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? What was that first brother's name? James. So the author of the book of James, the book that we're going to study for the next four weeks, for the entire month of August, the author is James, the half-brother of Jesus. He spent a lot of time with Jesus. He lived with Jesus, grew up with Jesus. But the interesting part about this whole story, the interesting truth about James, this James, is he did not believe in the teaching ministry of his brother. He did not acknowledge or accept that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And I know that because I've read some other verses of Scripture in the Bible. It's important that you do that. John chapter 7, verses 2 through 5 says this. When the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, who, who said this to him? His brothers, and they said this sarcastically, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, why don't you just show yourself to the world? For even his brothers, his own brothers, did not believe in him. Do you see that? The scripture is very clear. It tells us that the brothers of Jesus did not believe in him. So James was not his brother's number one fan. In fact, he thought he was beside himself, a little bit crazy on the inside. Him and his brothers, they got together, and they thought that Jesus was a deceiver, someone who was a fake, and they did not support his cause. They did not believe in his ministry, especially James, did not go after his brother or follow his brother until the resurrection. You see, James was there on Good Friday with all the rest of the people, great crowds of people. He watched, like everyone else, as Jesus was crucified, nailed to that cross. And he was there when Jesus breathed his last breath. And when he saw Jesus die, all of his suspicions that he had growing up were confirmed. But then a couple of days later, he got the shock of his life because he saw Jesus alive again. And when he did, immediately he fell to his knees, he repented of his rejection and his sin, and he declared Jesus Christ his brother as the Lord of his life. He became a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And again, I know that to be true because of another passage of Scripture. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. And I'm taking just a little bit of time to lay out this book and to lay out the author so you understand a little bit about it. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. After this, Jesus was taken up into heaven right before their eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. 
And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem. They went upstairs to the room where they were staying. And those present were Peter, John, and James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, not Iscariot. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. So right here in this passage, we see all of the James that I just described to you, all three of them. James, the brother of John. James, the son of Alphaeus. And James, the brother of Jesus. And not only did James become a follower of Jesus, not only did he surrender his life to the lordship of Jesus Christ, but a few days after this, like about 10 days, there in the upper room, James had a dramatic encounter with the Holy Spirit of God, and he became a powerful leader of the first century church, his brother's church. I mean, he was one of the pillars of the Christian church. And right around A.D. 50, some 20 years after the resurrection, James wrote this incredible book. And what's interesting to me is the time frame and what was taking place in the church when he wrote it. All right, this was about 20 years after the church had started, 20 years after Jesus went back to his throne in heaven. And what was happening among the people, among the church, many Christians were beginning to understand uh, the whole issue of being set free from the law of Moses. I mean, this was under controversy, and there were so many things going on, so many conflicts, and the church was beginning to understand that they had been set free from the law of Moses, and that it was the age of grace, and they had great liberty in Christ. And so what they began to tell each other, what, how they began to live, was with the understanding that they could conduct their Christian lives any way they wanted to. That they could live the Christian life because of the grace of God any way they wanted. And James comes along and he says, are you kidding? What? Yes, you're no longer under the law. And yes, you have been set free from the law of Moses and you have great liberty in Christ. But no, you can't live your life any way you want. Don't forget you are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ and there's really only one way to live. And here in the book of James, he spells it out and he shows us a practical yet powerful way to live. How we as believers are supposed to live. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read chapter 1 and there's a lot here. Our goal is to read every verse uh, throughout the month of August. It's not possible for me to talk about every verse, but I'd like to read them all. I'm going to encourage you to spend some time from week to week reading these chapters. And right now as I read through chapter 1, it's lengthy, I'm going to encourage you to stay with me. All right? Pinch yourself if you have to. Stay focused. 
I know you have a tendency to drift a little bit with this much scripture, but there is a lot here, and it's really, really important. So let's try to lock in. I'm going to read it slow and methodically, but I'm going to just ask the Holy Spirit to give you some fresh revelation and some inspiration as we read this, okay? Okay. All right. James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must not believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Special note. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, that word which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word, do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, 
to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. All right, again, a lot here. And way too much for me to try and talk about in one message. I'm going to strongly recommend that you go back over this stuff this week and just ask the Spirit of the Lord to speak to you. Now, for the purpose of this message this morning, James lesson number one, there are two passages that I want to highlight and talk a little bit about. But before we get to those two passages, there is absolutely no way that we could read James chapter 1 without me taking a little time and commenting on the very last verse in this chapter. Verse 27. James 1.27 says this, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. You know, Community Christian Church has been around for 27 and a half years. And from day one, when God first called this church into existence, James 1.27 became a life verse. This is something that is a part of us. Now, please understand, when we first got started, the, the very first thing that we did was to lay a foundation. That's what we started with the first year, so we laid a proper foundation. And I'm not talking about a physical foundation, I mean a spiritual foundation. The scripture says there can be only one foundation. Paul said, the one that was already laid. Any idea who that is? Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Everything that we do around here, we do for Jesus. As we sung about during the, the worship time, Jesus is the only way. He has the name above every name. We stand and exalt him as Lord and Savior. And so make no mistake, the foundation that we've laid and the foundation that we've had here as the chief cornerstone, as the, the solid rock, is Jesus. Amen. Amen. But on top of that foundation, I mean as close to the surface you can get, the very next layer is James 1.27. Widows and orphans. And the importance that God places upon us remembering them and reaching out to them. Now, when it comes to orphans and widows, I am the most gullible and exploitable person on the planet. And I am that by choice. I do it on purpose. Because over the years, I have learned that nothing moves the heart of God any quicker or more dramatically than reaching out to the poor and needy. You see, Christianity and compassion is synonymous. They go hand in hand. And we here at our church rarely miss an opportunity to reach out to an orphan. And trust me when I tell you that blesses the heart of God. And you're a part of that philosophy. You're a part of that kind of a church. The scripture is very clear. The religion that God accepts in addition to everything else that you do, all of the church services you log, all the hours that you pray, the, the verses of scripture that you memorize, all good stuff. But what Jesus and what God looks at more than anything else is the way we treat the poor. 
how we handle situations where he asks us to get involved with widows and orphans. And you're doing pretty good in this regard. So go ahead and give yourselves a round of applause. All right, the first passage I want to look at here is verse 22. James chapter 1 and verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Say that. Do what it says. One more time. Pretty easy instruction, right? Wrong. Uh, do not merely listen to the word. Do what it says. In John chapter 14 and verse 15, Jesus said it this way, if you love me, you will keep my commands. This is a really important point. This is huge in the eyes of God. To not only memorize God's word, know his word, understand it, listen to it, but to actually appropriate it in your life. Now, let's be honest, and let's all say because of our humanity, very few of us are ever going to get to the place of perfection, spiritual perfection. I'm just being honest. You know, we should aim for perfection. Paul said that. But we're rarely going to get there. But even though we mess up and we make mistakes and we miss the mark, we fall short of what God has for us, our mindset and our attitude should be to live our lives in strict obedience to God's word. Let me say that again. Even though we make mistakes, even though we understand we're going to need the grace of God to get past our failures and our faults, and overcome the temptations that we fall to so easily, even though that happens and God's grace is sufficient for us, our attitude, according to James, our mindset should be to listen to God's word, to appropriate it into our lives. And whenever you hear God's word, whether it's preached like I'm doing right now, or you take a passage of scripture and, and, and you read it during your devotion time, or maybe you're involved in a group Bible study and you're studying the word together. Whenever you come in contact with the word of God, there's really only three ways to respond to it. Three ways to respond to God's word. First way is to rejoice. So you read a passage of scripture and it gives you certain instructions and you know that you have already appropriated that instruction into your life. You're living that word out. I mean, you are doing exactly what the Word of God has commanded you or instructed you to do. You read that and you just get excited about it. You rejoice. You rejoice because you're walking in that grace. The second way to respond to God's Word is to repent. And the reason you repent is because you haven't yet applied that particular instruction to your life. And so what you do with your repentance is you not only say, I'm sorry about that, or, or, you know, I, 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 God, I, I'm trying. But you do a 180, and you attempt to overcome it the next time. That's what repentance is, going in a different direction. So the second way to respond to God's word is repentance. First way, rejoice. Second way is repent. And then sometimes you hear a new passage of Scripture, a new set of instructions you never heard before. But you open your heart to that revelation, you open your heart to that instruction, and you receive it. That's the final way to respond to God's word is to receive anything new that God would want to show you. So again, rejoice, repent, receive. Take, for example, Philippians 2.14. 
Philippians 2.14 gives us the instruction in God's word to do everything without complaining. Some of you didn't know it was there. It's there. <laughs> do everything without complaining. In other words, there's really never a good reason for you to complain. I mean, there's excuses, but there's never a good reason. So you could read that passage there, Philippians 2.14, and you could think to yourself, you know what, I'm trying to do that. And I watch what comes out of my mouth, and I try to believe for the best in people, and I try to encourage and be an inspiration and, and, and keep upbeat and positive. So you read that verse, what do you do? You jump up and down and you rejoice. You get excited about it. It's living in you. That word is, is transforming you. But then maybe you're a little bit of a complainer. And just criticism just slips out of your mouth. Well, you don't even tend for it to happen. It's just, it's just there. So what do you do when you read Philippians 2.14? You repent. Can't rejoice yet. So you say, what I'm going to do is I'm going to change it. I'm going to turn that around. And then, again, maybe you didn't know that complaining was offensive to God. Now you do. So you receive it. The three ways to respond to God's word. Rejoice, repent, receive. And James says, when you hear the word of God, don't just listen to it. Don't just write it down. Don't acknowledge it as being God's word only. Do it. Appropriate it into your life. And allow the word of God to change you. Allow the power of God's word, which is so critical in our lives, to adjust us, to change us, and to transform us. All right, the second passage that I wanted to highlight here is found in verses 2 and 3. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Consider it pure joy. What kind of joy? Pure joy. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance, the King James Version uses the word patience. And I believe that to be a good translation. The testing of our faith produces patience. Now, if there is one characteristic that we as humans possess that is totally contrary to the nature of God, that quality or that characteristic would have to be patience. Truth is, we're just not that patient. In fact, a lot of us border on the impatient. And if right about now you're feeling a little smug, thinking that you have this whole patience thing down pat, then why don't you ask your spouse or your children how you're doing in this regard? Oh, how, uh, how are you when you're at a restaurant and you're hungry and you've been waiting a long time and the service is less than stellar and now the kitchen's messed up your order for the second time. How do you do that? <laughs> this word patience in the Greek, it's a really powerful word. It's a really powerful concept. It means cheerful endurance. Say that. Cheerful endurance. Not just waiting your turn with a manufactured smile on your face. You know, like nothing's bothering you and you're okay on the outside. But I mean to be so cool on the inside 
that playing the waiting game does not alter your blood pressure or heart rate one little bit. That's what patience is. It's being able to actually endure in a joyful way or in a happy way, to be happy during the tests and trials. Now, I, I got to say that I'm trying with this one. I, I'm really working at this. had a lot to overcome. But truth be told, when I read verses of Scripture in the Bible that have to do with patience, I do a lot more repenting than rejoicing. <laughs> because it just goes against our grain. We have a hard time waiting, especially when we want it yesterday. Now, what's the reward, according to this chapter, James chapter 1, what's the reward for getting verses 2 and 3 right? Being able to be joyful and patient through the tests and trials. Well, verse 12. James chapter 1 and verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. What's the reward? The crown of life. You know, we, we read this. It's in the, the book of Revelation, too, as a, as a reward. But I don't think we really understand what the crown of life is. The crown of life is the distinction, recognition, and honor for living your life according to the word of God. For appropriating God's word in your life, especially when it's difficult to do, and allowing the word of God to change you. Because, friends, nothing else will do the change that is necessary. Nothing else will allow that change to stick. You may have good intention. You may be highly disciplined. Uh, you may be brilliant beyond your years. It's only the word of God that can appropriate the change in our lives. And the crown of life is what God gives to us. It's the honor that he bestows upon us when we allow the word of God to change us when we let the grace of God come into our hearts and we say, you know what, this is the way I normally behave, but the word of God gives me this instruction and so I'm not just going to listen to it, I'm going to do it. I'm going to let the word of God change me. The number one objective that God has in your life and in mine, this is what God will work an entire lifetime to do, is to make us in his image and likeness. More than anything else, more than anything you can accomplish and achieve in this life, God will go to work for an entire lifetime to make us in his image and likeness, that we could reflect his glory. That's the way he created us. Check it out in the Garden of Eden in Genesis. He made us in his image and likeness, and sin destroyed that. But God is in the business of restoration. And so by God's design, for whatever reason, tests and trials are the perfect remedy for our less than perfect character. By God's design, tests and trials are the perfect remedy for our less than perfect or our less than patient character. Tests and trials are not fun. I've had my share of them. If it were up to me, I wouldn't want not even one more. But I know they're on the horizon. And I know that they're on the horizon because the scripture tells me that they're God's remedy for helping me in my life. Helping me to be changed from the inside out.
And this gives me great confidence. What could possess James to say, count it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds? How could he even get away with that? Because he goes on to explain to us that no matter what we go through, God is with us. He will not leave us or forsake us. He takes us by the hand like a good shepherd and he walks us through the valleys to the valley and he knows what we're going through. Say that. God knows what I'm going through. You know, sometimes we get to the place where we think nobody else knows, nobody cares, nobody understands. I am the only person in this position. I am the only one going through this kind of a challenge. The scripture, not only in James, but throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament tells us that God absolutely knows and he's working on our behalf. So let's bow our heads and prepare for communion. Father, we thank you for your presence in this place. We sense it, Lord. It was with us all during the praise and worship time. As we gather together now, Lord, to celebrate the communion service, we ask that you would be with us in a very special way. Lord, we're praying that you would touch every heart in this place this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the challenge in your word that we can trust in you, we can put our hope in your instruction to us, and that we can count it joy, Lord. We can have patience. We can have a cheerful endurance during the time of waiting and during the time of trial because, Lord, you know what we're going through. And so I ask, Lord, in these closing moments of our service today through the communion time that you will minister in a powerful and a unique way in the life of every person. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, we're going to receive the emblems of the bread and the cup here in just a few moments, and I'm just going to ask you to hold on and don't receive them until we um, partake of them together. The scripture says it was on the night Jesus was betrayed that he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper had ended, he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks and he passed the cup to his disciples and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you declare the Lord's death till he comes. We've talked about that last statement time and time again. Declaring the Lord's death till he comes. Talking about his death for a number of different reasons. Especially because his death proved the extent of his love. And as you just heard uh, through the message of that song, that God has a kind of love that we're not accustomed to. Can you, can you understand that? There's a kind of love that God only knows. 
Your family members don't know it. Your friends don't know it. Your pastor doesn't know it. When it comes to the way that God is ministering to you and getting your attention and leading you in that place, that journey to where he's trying to perfect you, there's a love that only he can reveal to you. Now, when Jesus instituted the communion supper, it was during the last Passover that he celebrated with his disciples. They did this from year to year. In fact, Jesus celebrated Passover from the time he was a boy. And the disciples came together, and the scripture tells us that sometime during the Passover celebration, Jesus took bread and he took the cup and he passed it to his disciples and he instituted what we're celebrating, what we're commemorating this morning. Great gift to the church is this communion service. But in addition to telling us about it and appropriating it for us, Jesus said a couple of things to his disciples that were really important. He tried to articulate to them that he was going away. You know, they only had, knew, they only had known Jesus for the last three and a half years. I mean, they were committed to him. They, they gave up their businesses, their lives. They surrendered their lives to him, his disciples. And now Jesus wants to tell them that he's, he's going back to be with the Father. He, he tried, but they didn't understand it. But he said it anyway. Jesus said, my time here on earth is over and I'm going back to my throne in heaven, but I'm not going to leave you comfortless. Jesus said, I promise you, I'm going to send the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit of God, and he is going to be with you forever. That's his exact quote. You can find it in the Gospel of John. The Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to be with you forever at all times, in every situation. Is that a reality in your life? That a part of the Godhead is with me every day of my life, regardless of what I face, regardless of what I go through, regardless of the unfair and unkind blows this world gives to us. That Holy Spirit of God is right by my side. He's in my heart. He's with me. This is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Yours, your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. The enemy loves to whisper to us that God doesn't care. He loves to try and articulate and convince us that God doesn't know. Because if he did, if he, if he knew or if he cared, you wouldn't be going through the thing you're going through right now. You know, a year ago this month, I laid in a hospital bed at Beaumont Hospital, waiting the next day for a surgical procedure to correct a problem with my heart. And right around 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night, when everybody was gone and it was just me and the darkness, the enemy started doing his thing. And he told me, if God cared about you, you wouldn't be in this bed right now. You've believed in him. You put your trust in him. You've had faith. What are you doing here? If God has the power to heal, if God has the power to change situations, why are you going through this right now? And it was about 2 o'clock in the morning that I put on a playlist that my daughter-in-law put together for me that changed all of that. 
and I begin to lock into the goodness and the faithfulness of God. See, on the other side of the enemy's attempt to discourage you and lie to you is the truth of God's word. There's a kind of love that God only knows. Some of you right now, I know this. The Lord revealed this to me in the last 24 hours. You, you are alone. You feel alone in this life. And you've masked it. You haven't told anybody. I mean, you, you, you've been dealing with some things on your own and you're doing a good job of it. But the enemy has convinced you that nobody knows the spiritual and emotional condition you're in. On the authority of God's word, God knows, and he cares. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to be with us. We thank you, Lord, for the promise in your word that you are with us always. You know everything about what everyone in this place is going through. And, Lord, I'm asking that this word, that this life-giving message of you being with us will explode in every heart today. That we wouldn't just listen to that. That we wouldn't just acknowledge it intellectually, but it would come alive in our heart that you know, Lord. You know, and you are with us every step of the way. And you are already moving on our behalf. Help is on the way. Lord, you're putting us into a position to draw from you. Sometimes we don't want to be there, Lord. We don't like that arena where it's uncomfortable. But Father, you always have a good plan for us. That's what your word says. And so for every situation here right now, God, reveal yourself. Reveal the power of your love and the power of just being with us, your presence, Lord. Let us believe it, Lord. Let us accept it. Let's take the bread together. And I thank you, Lord, that you're our healer. You're our deliverer. You're our redeemer. And you still contain the power to set your people free. And for every situation in this place today, Lord, whether it's a physical, emotional, spiritual, financial, relational problem, you are the God who not only knows, but you have the power to change. And I ask, Lord God, for the Holy Spirit to come in supernatural waves to bring healing and correction and freedom and liberty and understanding. Lord, for those members of our congregation who are facing extremely difficult medical reports right now, we're asking for miracles, Lord. We're asking for you to get involved in a situation and you bring healing and power and anointing as only you can. We call out on the name that's above every name, the name of Jesus, knowing that every knee, every sin, every sickness has to bow to that knee, has to bow to that name. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you that Jesus is Lord. Let's take the cup together. Thanks again for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. For more messages like this and other resources, visit us online at cccsterling.org.